When I was in middle school and junior high, I was a part of a, a school organization called All Stars. And uh, it was an organization that encouraged students uh, to um, live lives of integrity and to be responsible and be leaders in your school. And what we would do was we would travel around to different elementary schools and we would talk to kids about the importance of positive peer pressure and abstaining from alcohol and drugs and other positive things like that. And every now and again, we would have a retreat on the weekends. And we would have kids from various schools who would come and they'd stay at a retreat for the weekend. And we'd do all kinds of things. We'd, we'd play uh, fun games and do funny skits. But we also had some serious moments as well. One of those was that we would have what were called mini-seminars which included a skit and then a small group discussion on some serious issues like alcohol and drug abuse and the consequences of bad decisions, and we would talk to the kids about making good decisions. Well, there was this guy that I was on staff with at All Stars, the nicest guy you'll ever meet. But you know the kind of guy that just nothing goes right for him? You know that kind of person? I mean... Poor guy, if something bad was going to happen, it was going to happen to this guy. And he was one of those guys that really didn't feel comfortable being up in front of a, a group of people. I mean, he'd get nervous just talking to you one-on-one. So you knew putting him up in front of a crowd was not a good idea. Well, on one of our weekend retreats, we were putting together one of the most important and serious skits on the consequences of alcohol abuse, and this guy lands the most important part in the skit. Now, it was just one line, which is probably the reason why he got it. And it comes at the very end of the skit, but it's the most important line in the entire skit. And as you can imagine, this guy is nervous. Okay, let me explain the skit to you. It's a very serious, very sad skit about about uh, a group of teens who are, who are killed in a drunk driving accident. And it's, it's very sad, very serious. And so we, we want to make sure we get everything right in this skit. And uh, so this, his part is, it comes at the very end of the skit. And he's to be standing in the middle of a cemetery, surrounded by gravestones, and he's holding an empty bottle in his hand, and he's supposed to deliver this line. So what's it going to be? A few of these? or a few of these. I mean, it's, it's an important line in the skit, and it, it makes the skit. Well, he's extremely nervous. I mean, all day long, he's walking around. So what's it going to be, a few of these or a few of these? What's it going to be, a few of these or a few of these? I mean, he's making me nervous. And I'm not even in the skit. Well, the time comes for the skit. And the room is packed. Everything's gone well in the skit so far. Comes down to his important moment. And the lights are out, and there's kind of this eerie lighting on the stage, and they have this eerie music playing, and even the fog machine going, kind of getting that feel of him being in a, in a graveyard. And he's standing front and center on stage. And all of a sudden, the music stops, and the spotlight hits this guy. And he's just frozen. And you're just sitting there. 
waiting for him to deliver that line. Come on, so what's it going to be? A few of these or a few of these? Well, as you can probably guess, he doesn't deliver that line. Instead, he just looks out and just says, Oh, boy. <laughs> and that was it. And the, and the spotlight goes down, and he's just devastated. But I have to be honest with you, and I feel good that y'all are laughing here because I was as well. It was really, really funny. I feel bad about it now. But another thing that his response did was it left the crowd just confused with this look of confusion. I mean, I'm sure they were thinking, what in the world was that end scene all about, you know? Here's the point. This guy was given the chance to make an impact, wasn't he? But the problem was he did not respond properly. Well, in a similar way, we as believers, we've been given the opportunity to make an impact in this world for Christ. God has you where he has you for his purposes, to be a representative for him. What a wonderful honor it is to be able to serve alongside the God of the universe and take part in the work that he is doing in the world. And the question is not, nor has it ever been, whether or not God is going to succeed, okay? God is going to accomplish his purposes. We serve a God who is incapable of failure. But here's the question. The question is this. Will we take part in or will we miss out on the work that God is doing in the world? If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Esther. It's right before the book of Job. We're going to be in Esther chapter 4 today. And for those of you all who read your spiritual growth guide last week, it shouldn't be a surprise to you that we're in Esther. I actually had you read the entire book this last week because we're going to be jumping in in the middle of the story. We are, we are currently in between sermon series right now. We just finished our series on We Are Fellowship. And next week, we're going to begin a study of 1 Corinthians entitled Paul's Message to a Messy Church. So I want to encourage you to take part in that. But, but I thought I was going to start the series this week, but I thought since a lot of our ladies are out on the women's retreat, I thought I'd wait a week. And I chose the book of Esther. Now, this is the same book our, uh, this is the same book our ladies are studying in their Tuesday night Bible study. And a lot of the ladies that go to the Bible study are actually on the retreat. So you can tell them they didn't miss out on anything this morning just because I'm a nice guy. I didn't want them to miss out, all right? So the book of Esther. Now, I know quite a few of you in here are, are pretty familiar with the book. You've read it through before. Maybe you've, by now you've seen the movie, A Night with the King. And you're pretty familiar with this story. But for those of you who are not, because we're jumping in, in chapter 4, let me bring you up to speed a little bit on what's happened so far in the book. In chapter 1, you have King Ahasuerus, who is an extremely powerful king. He reigned over 127 provinces from southern Asia to Africa. I mean, a large portion of the known world. And Ahasuerus 
though he is extremely powerful, what we learn from the story is he is easily influenced. And that's an important element in our story. Well, in chapter 1, Ahasuerus is having a banquet. And he has other leaders with him in the palace. And Ahasuerus is showing off his wealth. I mean, they're, they're drinking from cups of gold. The palace is all done up. And after a few days of partying and one drink too many, Ahasuerus sends for his beautiful wife, the queen, Vashti, because he wants to show her off in front of his friends. Well, Vashti refuses, and the king is furious. So as was custom, he begins to seek counsel from other wise men in the palace. And these guys say, look, you've got to get rid of her because she's made you look bad in public. And if our wives follow her example, that's going to be terrible. None of our wives are going to listen to us and do what we say. That'd be terrible, right, guys? <laughs> but anyways, so, so the king follows this advice, and he removes Vashti from power. Well, after this, the king begins to look for a replacement for Vashti, and that's when we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther was the cousin and the adopted daughter of Mordecai. Well, Esther is one of many women chosen to be a possible replacement for Vashti. And at this time, Esther is told by Mordecai to keep the fact that they were Jews quiet for the time being. Now, the story doesn't say they lied about who they were. It just says they didn't, they didn't tell anybody. So that's what they do. And of all the women chosen to be queen, Esther is the one who finds favor in the eyes of the king. In fact, we're told that she found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. She becomes queen. Now, an important detail in this story is this. When Esther becomes queen, Mordecai is indirectly given influence because he remains in contact with his daughter and we're told that Esther continues to follow Mordecai's advice even though she's no longer under his care. And we see Mordecai's influence at the end of chapter 2 in verses 21 through 23. In this passage, we're told that Mordecai discovers a plot by some of the king's officials to assassinate the king. So what he does is he tells Esther, and Esther in turn tells the king in Mordecai's name, and these men, their plan is stopped, and they're put to death. So you see right here, Mordecai's influence, right? And that's another important part of our story today. Well, in chapter 3, we're introduced to the villain of our story, Haman. We see here that the king is not a good judge of character, is he? Because he elevates this prideful and wicked man above all other leaders. Haman becomes second in charge next to the king. He's the king's right-hand man. Because Haman was in this important position of influence, the king requires for all to bow and pay homage to Haman. And most of them do so except for one. You know who that person is? 
Mordecai, that's right. Mordecai does not bow. Mordecai does not pay homage. And when asked why, he says, because he was a Jew. Now, a lot of people assume that this is a spiritual reason that Mordecai gives here. They, they say, you know, it's because Mordecai was a follower of the one true God, and so he refused to bow and worship men. But that's not true to the context here. You see, in those days, bowing and paying homage was not so much an act of worship as it was a sign of respect. So you're probably thinking to yourself, well, then why doesn't Mordecai bow and pay homage? It's because of the fact that Haman is a descendant of Agag, who was an Amalekite. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, the Amalekites were ancient enemies of Israel. And so Mordecai here, he's, he refuses to bow down because he is a proud Jewish man who did not want to bring shame on his people by bowing and showing respect for a known enemy of his people. Now, as you can imagine, this made Haman furious. In fact, in the NASB, it says in chapter 3, verse 5, Haman was filled with rage. And this just shows you how wicked Haman is. Instead of just putting Mordecai to death right there, he does something even worse. He goes before the king, and he manipulates, and he persuades the king to put his stamp of approval on a law that says all Jewish people are to be annihilated. They're to be wiped out. And the king puts his stamp of approval on this law. Warren Wearsby reported in his commentary on Esther that there were probably around 15 million Jews scattered throughout the Persian Empire at this time. 15 million. And because of uh, Mordecai's pride for his people, and because of Haman's wickedness, and because of the king's ignorance, because his wife's a Jew, he doesn't know it, all of these Jewish people are now appointed to die. And Mordecai finds out about this law that's been approved by the king. And you know what? He decides to do something about it, doesn't he? And that's where we find ourselves today in chapter 4. So what I want to do the rest of the morning is I want to look at both Mordecai and Esther's response, and I want to draw out some principles that we can apply from this great chapter in this great story, okay? Here's the first principle we learn when we look to Mordecai's response. Number one, be faithful at all times. Be faithful at all times. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out in a loud and bitter cry and he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whether the king's command or his degrees reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and in ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came to her and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off this sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, 
who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Mordecai hears this news and he makes the decision to do something about it. He goes before the king's gate clothed in sackcloth and in ashes. Now in verse 2, we learn that it was forbidden for someone to approach and try to enter through the king's gate clothed in this way. So what Mordecai is doing is he is putting his life on the line. And he is willing to take that risk and suffer the consequences for God's people. Mordecai is a bold man, isn't he? He is. Putting his life on the line for these people, some of which he'd never met. We also learn in this text that there were others following Mordecai's example, right? In the surrounding areas, they were openly showing their disapproval. And you can tell how serious Mordecai's response is when you look at Esther's response. When she finds out, we're told that she was deeply distressed and she sends clothes to put on Mordecai, but Mordecai refuses them. Don't you love Mordecai's character? He's a bold man who loves God's people. And even with the deck stacked heavily against him, he's not out, is he? He continues to fight for his people. All 15 million of his people have been appointed to die. And Mordecai doesn't tuck tail and run, does he? No, he does the opposite. He goes in front of the king's gate and openly shows his disapproval. When times get tough for you, how do you respond? Are you faithful no matter what? Are you just faithful in the good times? And when bad times, tough times come, do you tuck tail and run? Like I said a few weeks ago, many are willing to sacrifice and to follow God as long as it's not too costly, right? We want a cheap cross to bear. We're willing to sacrifice as long as it doesn't cost us too much when it comes to our health and our wealth. Not Mordecai. He had a death sentence placed upon him and his people, and he doesn't run, but instead he continues to faithfully fight for God's people and for God's purposes. And get this, this is what God wants from us. He does. Though we don't know what's right around the corner, I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for me. I do know this from God's word. We're told time and time again and given example after example that we're to be faithful at all times. We're to be faithful no matter what. Number two, Understand the consequences for being unfaithful. Look at verses 6 through 9. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So, so Mordecai refuses the garment 
that Esther sends to him. And that begins this dialogue between the two. And Mordecai sends, by way of Hathach, a copy of the law to show and explain to Esther this ruling against God's people. And he commands for her to go and be a representative for the Jewish people before the king. And we learn as we read further, Esther's a little hesitant about doing this, isn't she? She's hesitant about going before the king. Look at verse 10 11. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Now, you might be tempted to be a little hard on Esther here, you know, for being hesitant about going before the king and for making all these excuses for why she shouldn't go. But let's be honest, put yourself in her shoes. Wouldn't you be a little bit hesitant? I mean, imagine her situation. Many of us would be tempted to respond in this way, wouldn't we? I mean, Mordecai is calling for her to go in and to put her life on the line. And notice how she responds to Mordecai in verse 11. Let me summarize. She's basically saying here, you know, I've not been summoned. The king has not called me in. So if I go in before the king and he doesn't raise his golden scepter, I'm going to be facing certain death. She's probably thinking, too, he removed Vashti without any problem, without any issue. She truly thought, as of right now, I'm good. I'm in a safe place. Things are good for me, but if I walk in and the king doesn't motion to me, all that's going to change for me, and I'm going to be facing certain death. Notice Mordecai's response, though. Does Mordecai say to her, you're right. What am I thinking? You're my daughter. I don't want you to go in and risk your life. Remain hidden. Remain safe. Is that what Mordecai says? No. Look at verses 12 and 13. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Mordecai knew because of the influence he had and the position that Esther was in that they were obligated to take a stand for God's people. He knew this is what God would want. And because this is the case, Mordecai knew that the only safe way for him to respond was to stand for God's people and to follow God's guidance and direction. And he calls for Esther to do the exact same thing. First, he uses common sense to make his point. What did the law say? It said all the Jews, right? All the Jews were to be put to death. And you can imagine how wicked Haman is. He would probably stop at nothing to make sure all the Jews were discovered and found out and put to death, even those within the palace. And Mordecai realizes that, which is why he says, do not think because you're in the king's palace that you will escape, whereas the other Jews will not. You know, sometimes we feel this way. Even though we may not voice it, 
we truly feel as if avoiding God's clear call at times is a safer option, don't we? I mean, we do. Think about it financially. Some think, you know, I know that I'm to be giving back to God, but I think really things would be better off financially for me if I didn't. Maybe it's social pressures. Some think, you know, I know I need to take a stand for Christ, but I could lose my friend or my popularity. At times we avoid God's clear call in our life, thinking it's a safer option. And that's Esther's mentality here. But Mordecai lets her know, failing to respond to God's clear call is never the safer option, is never the better option, even though it seems less risky. I mean, let's be honest. We, we don't like that word risk, do we? We don't. We don't like the word risky. We want to be safe and secure. But, but let me burst your bubble this morning. Here's the truth of the matter. I'm going to sound like Solomon. Truth is, risk, I mean, uh, safety and, and, and being safe and secure, that's a facade. It is. And the reason why? is because there are all these uncertainties in life. There are. Scripture is clear. We don't know what a day may hold, do we? And deep down, we know that to be true, don't we? Look at what John Piper says in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I love this quote. All of our plans for tomorrow's activities can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or ride the freeways. That's the truth. Truth is, risk is unavoidable. It is. Every one of us risk, took a risk this morning, didn't we? Getting into a vehicle and driving to church. We don't like to think about it, but it's, it's true. Now, because this is the case, doesn't mean we need to go out and live recklessly. I mean, that's, no, that's not a wise way to uh, go about life. But God's word is clear that risk at times is right when it's done for God and for his purposes. Think about it financially. I mean, a few unexpected medical bills, stock market crash, theft, bad investments, any one of those things or a number of those things could drain us dry in a short period of time. That's humbling, isn't it? But it reminds us that we own nothing. You know that deep down to be true too, right? Because you know one day your hearse is not going to be pulling a U-Haul. We can't take it with us. We need to realize this. Realize that giving back to God and supporting His ministry, that's a worthy investment. It is. Think about it socially. Let's think about things socially. You can lose friends over any number of things, couldn't you? Petty dispute, one of you moves away. We talked about in Ecclesiastes how our popularity is fading. People are popular one minute, and then they're hot one minute and not the next. It's reality. Don't you think taking a stand for Christ, telling someone something they may not want to hear so they can become more of what God wants them to be, don't you think that's worth the risk? God's word says that it is, and, and this is the kind of risk that Mordecai is calling for Esther to make. Look at verse 14. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, 
relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, Mordecai says something very interesting here. He basically tells Esther, if you don't respond, someone else is going to. Isn't that interesting? Mordecai knew the Jews weren't going to be wiped out. Now, how did he know this? The reason why is because Mordecai had supreme confidence in God's faithfulness. What had God promised? The Jews are the promised people, right? They're the favored people of God. Mordecai knew that. And he knew for God to allow them to be wiped out, he would have to go against his very word. And I love that Mordecai understood that. He says, even if you do nothing, deliverance is going to come from another place, but you'll be in jeopardy, not God's people and not God's will. Mordecai had supreme confidence in God's faithfulness. Do you have that kind of confidence in God? Ask yourself that this morning. Do you trust that when God says something in his word, he's going to do it? Mordecai did. He knew God was going to do a great work. He was going to protect his people. But the question he brings to Esther is whether or not she's going to take part in or miss out on it. Like I said earlier, God's doing a great work in our world today, isn't he? He's calling people out of the world to be witnesses to the world. And he is building up a community of believers for himself. He's using these people as representatives of Him for His purposes. And the question is not whether or not God is going to succeed in doing this. He is. The question you need to answer this morning is this. Will you join Him? Are you going to join Him? Are you going to miss out on all the blessings that come from being used by God for His purposes? Number three, know that nothing happens by chance. I love this. God has you where he has you for his purposes. Look at verse 14, the end of it. And who knows, Mordecai says, whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Did you know the book of Esther in the book of Esther, the name of God is never mentioned. It's interesting, isn't it? It's the only book in all the Bible where this is the case. But let me ask you this. Can you see God at work in this story? Can you see his hand of providence? Mordecai saw it. It's most definitely there. I mean, his presence, his work in the lives of Esther and Mordecai, it's obvious, right? And, and what we learn, one of the main things that we learn from this book is that nothing happens by accident. We serve a God who is in control of the circumstances of life. We often want to highlight kind of the miracles that God does, and he does do that. But more often than not, God works in and through the circumstances of life, and that is equally supernatural. We need to recognize that, and we definitely see that in this story. In this passage we just discussed previously, in the previous passage, Mordecai gives practical reasons why Esther should respond properly. But here in verse 14, he gives her a deeper spiritual reason why she needs to take a stand for God. And the reason why is because it's God's will. 
It's God's will. Mordecai wants Esther to see that God has her where he has her in this position for this reason. For those of y'all that have read the rest of the story, you find out that's the case, right? Esther does respond properly and eventually goes before the king and takes a stand for uh, God's people and God's people are spared. Now let me ask you this. Were the Jewish people spared because they were just lucky? They happened to have a Jewish representative who happened to be king over a large portion of the known world when this law was passed. Is that coincidence? No. Jews were not spared because Esther happened to be in the right place at the right time and happened to make, take, uh, respond properly. They were spared because they belong to the one true and living God who is in control of the circumstances of life. God had Esther exactly where he wanted her so that she could be a representative for him and for his people. And guess what? It's the same God we serve today. It is. This should encourage you this morning. Let me assure you of one thing this morning. I I don't know what's going on specifically in each and every one of your lives, but let me tell you this morning, I know that God knows. And you know what? God is, He's on the throne. He has you where He has you for His purposes. God has given you the family that you have, the job that you have, the, 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 the friends that you have. He has you in the current circumstance that you're in, ultimately for this reason, for His purposes. And when we realize this about God, when we realize that, that God's hand is over our health and over our relationships and over our finances and over our suffering and our pain and our trials, when we realize God is in control of these things and that He has purpose by in everything that He does and that His purpose is good, get this. That might just mean that what seems to be the greatest tragedy in your life can really turn out to be your greatest joy. You ever thought about that? That might just mean that what seems to be your greatest defeat in life can really turn out to be your greatest victory. Maybe you're going through it this morning. You're in a difficult place in your life, in a dark time in your life, and you feel as if you've been just eaten up and spit out by the difficulties of life. I urge you this morning to remember this. God is in control and respond properly. No, he has you where he has you for a reason. And he has a purpose behind everything that he does and that his purposes are good and follow him regardless. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you like what you hear and you want to respond in this way. You want to take part. And what God is doing, you like the fact that God is is calling out a people out of this world to be a witness to the world, and you want to be a part of that. Let me ask you this morning, do you know him personally? Before you can join God in the work that he's doing in the world, you have to know him in a personal way. At one time, man did know God in this way. Man knew God better than we know him, and he served him and lived for him perfectly. But all of that changed. Because man decided to reject God's way and to go at life on his own. 
And that's where we are today. Each and every one of us, we have made the same mistakes today. We've repeated the very sin of Adam in that we've rejected God's guidance and direction in our life, and we've chosen to go at life on our own. But the great thing we learn about God is He has reached out to us again in the person and work of Christ. He wants us to turn from our sin and trust in Him, follow Him. Like I said earlier, I, I, I don't believe anything happens by chance. I don't. I don't believe that you're here by chance, by accident. I believe God has each and every one of you here for a reason. He has you listening to this message for a reason. God wants you to come and know Him and live for Him. The question you have to ask is this. How am I going to respond? I pray that you respond properly. Let's pray. Father, we praise you.